Glory to God. Whom the Son set free is free indeed. Are you free this morning in Jesus Christ? I sure hope so. I know I am. Um, we, As you know, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we are looking at the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it is very important to Paul, who is compelled to preach the gospel and to plant churches for Jesus Christ. It's very important for him to, to offer this teaching to the church of Corinth so that they have a proper understanding of the two covenants and how they fit together. Because if a, a misunderstanding of either covenant can lead to waywardness and dangers. So in the first sermon, I offered an overview of the covenants, kind of a, a drone picture, if you will, uh, overhead picture so that we could get an idea of what they were all about. And then we looked at this scripture last time and found that Paul calls the old covenant a covenant of death, a ministry of death and condemnation. Those are, seem like pretty harsh words, but we unpack that to find what that meant. And that is that the law... Its intent is to lead us to realize that we cannot fulfill it. God's a holy God. He has perfect statutes and laws. And that's his will for mankind is to obey them and to worship him perfectly. But we are unable to do that in our fallen state. And so the law, specifically the moral law, although the other laws, the ceremonial and the civil, also we're buttresses of this truth that try as we may, we cannot fulfill it. And therefore, the intent is to drive us to the cross, to drive us to see our need for God's mercy and God's grace and to realize that God is a God of grace, that he offers us what we need for salvation. And so it's it, we walk on dangerous ground if we don't properly understand these covenants, the whole gospel, the good news being set free by the son, being free indeed is tied up in these promises that God has given humanity from the very beginning, from the time of the fall. And if the old covenant in particular is misused, it can cause people to stay in a mode of worship that's strictly ceremonial and never get to what we might consider the real thing, and that is Jesus who fulfilled all of the ceremonies and the, symbol, and the um, symbols. Paul said that the Old Testament came with tremendous glory. It's a glorious thing. We can't just dismiss it. We need the Old Testament to properly understand the glory of the New Testament. But we just want to make sure that we understand the Old Testament in the way it's intended to be understood and applied on this side of the cross. Because the, the main point that Paul wants to drive home in this passage, and I'll read it in just a second, is that as glorious as the Old Covenant was, and it was glorious. I mean, think about the, the, the thunder and the lightning um, on top of the mountain, the smoke and the people at the bottom that were forbidden to even go up. And it was only Moses and God. It was a terrifying experience. And then Moses' face was radiant. And, and you had the temple 
uh, fixings and you had the priests and their garments. I mean, it was a beautiful, glorious spectacle. And God met with the people. And yet Paul says the new covenant, in, in essence, puts that to shame when it comes to the glory and the presence of God. In order to understand these two covenants in their proper place, we have to understand and wrestle with the difference or the balance between law and grace. We need to understand law in its proper place and then grace in its proper place. And either one can be misused. So not so long ago, uh, I, I read of an account of a faithful church member who was became a Christian and was really uh, getting into the study of Scripture and went to his pastor and said, you know, pastor, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? And he said, by obeying the law, by keeping the law. And even more recently, somebody in this church came up and shared with me that that same scenario happened in a situation that they were aware of, where someone asked the pastor, how do you get saved? And they said, by keeping the the law. So I don't know how, how dominant, predominant that kind of thinking is, but that is dangerous thinking. That's not the gospel. The gospel is salvation by grace. So how were people saved in the Old Testament? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Wait a minute. If the, if the law is a ministry of death and condemnation, then are all the Old Testament People with Old Testament saints, dead and unsaved. And if that only led them to that place of condemnation, then how did they get saved? Because Christ had not yet come. Christ had not yet died on the cross. And that's the question that we want to tackle this morning. But we're going to look at it in this sense. We're going to look at it uh, going back to verse 6. Where Paul compares the ministry of death with what he calls the new covenant, the ministry of life or the spirit of life. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 through 18 again so we understand the context and we'll just dive right in. Again, Paul was defending his sufficiency as a minister of the gospel. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, since we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read when they read the old covenant that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, 
The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amen. God's holy word. And even that verse is packed with such hope because I'm, I'm just you know, realizing as I read that, that sitting in the presence of God, worshiping him today as the saints of God, he is transforming us yet another degree, another degree of glory, conforming us to the image of Christ. So we looked at an overview and I want to look at verse six, return to this because he talked about the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And that's the comparison that Paul takes in looking at these covenants. One is a ministry of death and one is a ministry of life. By the way, the word ministry there is the Greek word diakonos, where we get our word for deacon. And it basically is, is a servant. It's a, it's a specific way to serve the Lord. The deacons serve the Lord. And so the old covenant had a service to humanity, a specific service to or ministry to humanity. It served them in that way. And the old covenant gave us the law. In particularly, we're focusing on the moral law. It gave us the Ten Commandments. And that was part of its ministry. Part of its place in God's redemption. The law. And by giving us the law, it reveals God's holy, perfect character. That's why the law is, this law is eternal. Because God is eternal and it's just a reflection of how perfect he is. And so... The old covenant gave us the law, a perfect law from a perfect God. And it's his will, of course, that his creatures keep this law. Because that's how peace and love and harmony are kept in the world. But when you take God's perfect law and you compare it to humanity and how we live, how we look at each other, the choices we make. You quickly see that we fall way short of God's holy standard. And so the law does a great job at exposing our hearts. We are deceived if we look at the Ten Commandments and think that we are nailing them. I spoke to somebody, it's probably been 20, over 20 years ago now, uh, Talking to him about salvation. And I said, well, how do you how do you get the assurance of salvation? He says, I just try to keep the Ten Commandments. I think that's what the Bible's all about. It's all boiled down to the Ten Commandments and you keep the Ten Commandments and I do the best I can. And that's that's my hope for salvation. I don't understand how. People can seriously gaze at the Ten Commandments and think about all the application and think that we have actually kept them to God's standard. Having no other gods, I mean, we, we're created to glorify God with our whole being. Who does that every day? Who applies their minds and their hearts, their, their energy, their action, and ascribes 
the glory and the worship to God that he deserves. That's his, that's his standard, and yet who can keep that other than, of course, Jesus Christ? So the moral law, that was its intent. <clears throat> so we're kind of back where we started, if you think about it. The intention is to drive man to see his awareness of his sin. And you'll remember the illustration of the tax collector in the temple, that parable that Jesus gave. What was he doing? He had alienated himself. He was tearing his clothes, beating his chest, crying for mercy. What happened to this guy? He didn't see himself fit. And that is what made him fit. He did not see himself fit. He saw that he was in tremendous need of God's grace and mercy. And Jesus says he's the one that went home justified. As opposed to those that are still trying very hard and diligently. And based on their works. Seeing themselves or counting themselves righteous or justified before God. So if the Old Testament kills... It's got this powerful ministry of death. Where's your hope? How do people in the Old Testament get saved then? Well, the best explanation is given in the book of Hebrews. And this little passage in Corinthians is actually just a little mini teaching of the entire book of Hebrews. It is way more extensive. And you'll know that in that book we have what we call the, the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith. Where you have the great saints of God who... Who accomplished incredible things for the Lord. I mean against all odds. They are packed into this book. And they are examples for us to follow. But it's the hall of. We call it the hall of faith. Because the teaching in that book. Is about the importance of faith. As your way to achieve your right standing with God. Faith in the proper source. Faith in the proper object. <clears throat> so, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, many think it's Paul, pays tribute to these individuals for what? Not in the way they kept the law, but in the way they kept the faith. That's the whole point. Look at that incredible faith that they had, and look how far they could go with it. So, it's not... A tribute to law keeping. It's a tribute to faith keeping. And their faith in God enabled them to do profound things. Uh, trusting in him and his purposes. No matter what life threw at them. No matter what circumstances that they came across. They prevailed here. And so it's of course added in here for us to understand theologically. How salvation works, but also to inspire us. That people, these people really lived and they really did these things. And Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is saying they did them because they believed God. They believed what God said. And so that's an example of how far individuals can go with the Spirit of God and faith of God. So in chapter 12 in Hebrews, the very first verse, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before them. So don't just spectate, participate. So they are a great cloud of witnesses. Well, witnesses of what? What are they giving testimony to? Well, it's the validity of faith. This is what faith in God does. This, these are the benefits of faith, the blessings of living a life of faith. So it's all about the importance of faith. And then in chapter 11, verse 2, it says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. That's the New American Standard. Or, <clears throat> for by it, my version says, For by it the men of old gained approval. So how did you gain approval or commendation from God in the old covenant? It was by faith. So faith was in the old covenant as well. That's how they were approved. It was because of their faith. So all the examples that he gives, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, uh, the harlot, all of these are models of faith. And the list goes on from David Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophets and so forth. So it was their faith in God that enabled them to accomplish these exploits. Shutting the mouths of lions. Becoming mighty in war. Defying all odds. Uh, some of them were scourged. Chained. Uh, they were tempted. They were tortured. Some of them were killed. And how does it end this chapter in verse 39? And all these, though commended through their faith. So the whole chapter begins in verse 2 with what? They found their approval, commendation, and faith. And then, like a bookend, all of these were commended for what? For their faith. Approved for their faith. And then, you wonder, well, where are you going with this? Verse 39. They did not receive what was promised. And you think, oh, what? You mean they did all that? They suffered, they, 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 they fought, they prevailed, they were tortured, they, they put their bodies through this and their minds and their souls. They did all of this and they didn't receive what was promised. I mean, they set the standard were to look to them as a hall of witnesses and follow after that kind of God living and God trusting. And they did not receive what was promised. How does that fit into this? In verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us. They should not be made perfect. Now that is a profound verse. Because. That, that's God's master plan at work. Where everything has its purpose and its timing. So what he is saying here is apart from us, in a sense, in other words, they, part of their salvation and believing experience was not fulfilled because it's God's plan that that part be fulfilled with those that will believe in him on this side of the cross. So there's a sense in which 
the, the saints of old who were commended by God for their faith. They got this far and some of the promises were fulfilled, but not the promise. They got this far and, and were stopped because they couldn't go over the finish line, so to speak, apart from us. Apart for those, from those that would come, they should not be made perfect yet. So they weren't allowed to cross the finish line, if you will, until by God's plan of redemption, we all do it together. So why bring this up? Because those in the Old Testament, as much as they accomplished, it still was God's plan that it was not enough. There was another promise to come. That included us. So it couldn't be finalized. They took it as far as they could. So what couldn't be finalized? What is it that was missing? What, are, what is it that we're going to do together as opposed to apart? Because they had saving faith. They believed in God and they were commended for their faith. But it wasn't quite finalized based on this better promise. What is that that they're waiting for? Well, to put it simply, apart from what happened in the new covenant with Jesus Christ, the old covenant saints were not saved. Because part of God's plan in the old covenant included what would happen, what is to come through Jesus Christ. So what was accomplished in the old covenant, they took it as far as God allowed, and the rest would be accomplished in the new covenant. So technically speaking, if Jesus never came, the Old Testament saints would not have been saved because their salvation and their faith was in the promise to come. And the promise to come was Jesus the Messiah. So it's complicated because they're saved based on the promise to come. And obviously, if God promised it, it's going to come. So you could say whether they're saved. But technically or theoretically, had Christ never come and die on the cross, there would not be a single soul saved in the world. All salvation, past, present, and future is based on Jesus Christ and the atoning blood of Christ and the obedient life of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so all of that faith in the Old Testament was was thrust towards what God would do in the future. You could, I'm not going to do it, but you could go back to Genesis and the promise about bruising heel and crushing heads. It's something that God's going to do. And when he does, then there's a finality to it. So they... Old Testament saints, they worked within the parameters of the Old Covenant beautifully. And it did everything for them that it was intended to do. But the only way they could truly be forgiven for their sins was through the blood of Christ. The animal sacrifices, for instance, right? They kept offering them, kept offering them. Why? Because their their sins kept coming and there wasn't enough blood. The animal sacrifices were just God's gracious way... Of, of inter, um, 
of like an intermediate way of salvation or atoning blood that runs out. There's just not enough animal blood to go around, but it was never intended to be permanent. Then we find in the New Testament that one sacrifice that covers all the sins. So the old covenant actually served to point to this beautiful, glorious ministry of Christ. It's, it's a huge, necessary, beautiful stepping stone that steps us up and enables us to appreciate what Christ has done in the new covenant. He has appeased God forever over the sins of man. So that's very, very important to understand how were the old covenant saints redeemed? Technically through the blood of Christ. The animals were just a temporary, the temple and so forth. It's a shadow of the things to come. It was a sacrifice of Christ. So how were people in the Old Testament saved? Don't say by keeping the law. You say by faith. They were saved by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promise to come, the Messiah, the revelation that God had given them to that time. They didn't see Jesus in, in that day. Jesus hadn't been born of the Virgin Mary yet. But they believed in this one that God would send. The Savior, the Son of David, the King, Jesus. That's how they were Saved. So no matter how courageous they were, no matter how filled with faith they were, no matter how devoted, no matter how obedient, if Jesus did not come and finalize their redemption, they would not be saved. But Jesus did come. He did finalize their redemption. And so they are saved. So we get little hints of this by passages such as uh, also in Hebrews you know, Abraham was looking for the, the city and the building whose architect, the builder whose architect was, was God. The builder is God. The architect and the builder is God. He's, he's looking for the thing. So as God's promises for him are being fulfilled, say, with the blessings of children and so forth, there's, there's this one to come that he has his eye on. And then there's this passage in Mo, about Moses in chapter 11:25 and I'm still referring to Hebrews. This will help it I think pull together. Where the author says so he's talking about Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, how can the Apostle Paul say that? Or the author of Hebrews say that? Moses didn't know Jesus. He didn't know Christ. Christ hadn't even come yet. So what, is, what could this possibly mean? Is this a glitch in the Apostle's thinking? How could he consider Christ who had not come yet? Well, because God had informed the people in his revelation that the, there will be a prophet to come. 
There will be anointed one to come. There will be a Messiah to come. And that's who Moses is looking to. That's who he's trusting in because God told him to trust and believe in that. And that's what he did. And the Old Testament saints trusted and believed in God according to the revelation that he had given them at that time. They were accountable to that revelation. Just like the entire world is accountable to the revelation that has come to us through Christ and the apostles in the Gospels. The entire world is accountable to obey that revelation from God. And the same went for the Old Testament. So they believed God in this way. From Adam to Nicodemus, if you will. It's pointing to the cross. This, this one who's going to come. And tie up all the loose ends. And bring God's people home. So the written law is beautiful. But it can't save us. It can't give us the power to obey the law. And when Christ came and rose from the dead, he sends the Holy Spirit as a deposit, again, of the things to come. So there's more to come. But the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. He gives us a new heart and a new nature. Because that's what we need. We can't fulfill the law. And we have this in Jeremiah 31. I'll just read a little bit of it because I read it in a few sermons ago. Where the promise... Again, God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So when the law's out here written by the finger of God on stone tablets, we just can't do it. But when God gives us a new heart and a new nature empowered by his Holy Spirit, then we are able to do it. So we're saved by faith and we are, the New Testament says, we are being saved. So we're saved and we're being sanctified. So we're going to heaven for sure if you believe in Christ. And yet God, one degree of glory after another, is conforming us to the image of Christ. So we should be, and I hope you are, I know I am, and I got a long way to go. But I am way more uh, holy today than I was the day I got saved. I hope that you can say that as well. So God does for man what man cannot do for himself as man seeks his forgiveness and his saving power. For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. Now and back in 2 Corinthians verse 9, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And it does. That's why we glory only in the cross. Bottom line, we know that much. We glory only in the cross. It's all about the, the cross. It's the, it's the lynch, it's been described as the linchpin of all of history when Christ came and fulfilled his ministry. This is real stuff. This really happened. Uh, what we read about in the Old Testament really happened. What we read about in the Gospels really happened. These are truths that we know. As a matter of fact, this, this need for redemption and the reality of the existence of a holy God is so real and present in our world that Paul tells us in Romans, we have to push it away. We have to suppress it. We have to stuff it because we're surrounded by it. 
and we're accountable to it. And he says there's enough there for even pagans to understand they are accountable to the one and only true God. But what do we do? We push it away. That's how real it is. If it wasn't real, if it wasn't pressing in on us and our minds, it wasn't heavy on our hearts, we wouldn't have to keep pushing it away and suppressing it. But that's what Paul says humanity does. That's how real he is. We have to pretend that he is not there. So he is God. He's a fierce God. And he's a holy God. And he says, uh, sin does not go unpunished. Because I'm a holy God. But he puts his wrath and the punishment for all of the sin and the defilement of humanity on one being. And that is his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is punished. He is executed for our sin. But he's a righteous man. And in exchange for our sin, he gives us the gift of his perfect righteousness. So we have the age of salvation that we live in. This great news of what Jesus Christ has done for humanity. Now we, we hear this popular um, title today, Jesus is Calling. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. The Holy Spirit does go out into the world and convict hearts and souls. That's how we came to Christ. Everyone in here, one way or another, heard the gospel and we bowed the knee to it. We said, yes, that's real and true. I need to be forgiven. I was created to live for and worship Christ. And I'm reminded of the very, very familiar verse that we'll close with in Revelation 3.20. Just to give you an idea of the kind of God we're talking about. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat or sup with him, fellowship with him, and he with me. This holy, fierce, powerful God has a heart to fellowship with his creatures. Made it possible through the ministry, the new covenant ministry of Jesus Christ. And describes him as one who knocks on the door of our hearts, if you will. So that we can commune together. That is the heart of God. You know, they say that the new covenant was inaugurated and we call it the Last Supper. Because it was Jesus's last supper on earth. But Jesus' last supper as he gave his body and as he gave his blood really is, is our first supper. Because now as we partake of the holy sacraments, it's because of the ministry of Christ. It's our first supper in fellowship and communion with Almighty God. So we can we can we can can sit, sit in, in the presence of and enjoy fellowship on friendly terms because of the glory of the new covenant. We all need Christ. We all need to turn to Christ. And we once we've turned to Christ, if you haven't turned to Christ yet, I encourage you turn to Christ. Give your life, give your heart to Christ. He sets you free from the bondage that you have placed yourself in. And if we have already done that, we need to continue on a daily basis. Give ourselves more to Christ. We only stand to benefit from this. 
And even though we're saved, we still resist, do we not? We still resist. So this is an, an appeal and a plea. Let us, Jesus is calling. We all need him. He's knocking, open the door, let him into this room, let him into that room, let him, let him take over, love him, worship him, exalt him, glorify him. We live in the light and the truth of the glory of the new covenant. Let us glory in the cross. May God bless the preaching of his word.